Oborn and Heller on Cricket, brought to you by the Chiswick Calendar. Hello from me, Richard Heller, in a chilly southeast London. A renewed apology from uh, Peter Oborn, who's still away on his overseas assignment. Our gratitude again to our friend Roger Alton for relieving him at the pavilion end. And hello, this, this is uh, uh, Roger Alton here. What a privilege it is to uh, be here trying to fill those immense boots. I'm here in um, Dulwich, where it's a rather grey day, not fit for cricket. Um, hello. We're delighted, Roger, to welcome today as our guest um, Jill Rutter. Jill is a visiting professor at King's College London and a senior fellow at the Institute for Government, an institute which has the uphill task of trying to make government better. Jill is a regular commentator and broadcaster on Brexit and on public administration issues. Lately, she commented very trenchantly on the chaos at number 10 after the resignation of Boris Johnson's communications director, Lee Kane. She speaks with huge authority as a former senior civil servant with many important roles. Uh, They included being the Treasury's communications director and a spell in the number 10 policy unit. But much more important and Really, the reason why we're welcoming her today is that she's a, a lifelong cricket lover. Jill, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for giving me the opportunity to talk about something other than Dominic Cummings and uh, whether we'll get a deal or no deal. Well, <laughs> will we get a deal or no deal? <laughs> no, I know. Off, off limits. Um, indeed. Roger, why don't you open the bowling? Sure, no, that's very uh, great, a great privilege. Jill, just go through. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about your sort of early life, where you you were born near Birkenhead, I think. But just tell us, you know, what what it was like watching Lancashire. And I was very interested about uh, outgrounds, and uh, so if you'd like to say something about that, I would love to hear it actually. Yes, so actually, I was born. I was born down south near London, but oh, uh, but when I was uh, nearly five, we moved up to Birkenhead because my father worked for a for a bank that was actually headquartered uh, in Liverpool. So we moved up to Birkenhead, and it's one of these things. People ask me, you know, they sort of say, "Why did you get into cricket?" And it's one of those things that I always find really difficult to answer because I can never remember not being into cricket uh so my very earliest memories are I think they used to do a thing um and this seems like ages old now we just watch wall-to-wall cricket on sky all the time but we used to watch that sort of snippet where they used to after the six o'clock news I think have the sort of final overs of a test match in sort of black and white and so I remember watching that you know my dad had come home from work has to be said my my mother was not a cricket fan and my brother remained very resistant to ever being at all keen on cricket though we did used to play in the Black Garden but we lived up in uh, up in Birkenhead Birkenhead's obviously near Liverpool so Lancashire you'd think is our home county but actually Lancashire rather shunned that side of Lancashire so um, they were based very much in Manchester so we never really went to see them. So my early cricketing watching memories are firstly sort of walking through fields. That doesn't sound like your image of Birkenhead, but post-industrial decline, etc. But walking through fields with my dad to go and watch uh, Oxton Cricket Club play. So a bit of club cricket there, which was sort of, you know, suitably bucolic, despite being in Birkenhead. And 
Then uh, when we were slightly older, we used to go to those sort of slightly odd Sunday league show matches that they used to have by people called the Rothman Cavaliers, I think they were called. Um, uh, So we used to go around and watch those. You get some of the sort of big names coming in on a Sunday. I also remember my... Uh, my dad was from uh, Northumberland, and I also remember it was a period when Rohan Kanhai, bizarrely, was playing for Ashington. So yeah, I remember we went up there. So I was, you know, good little girl, used to go take my autograph book, go and hang around, trying to get people to give me autographs. And that's really my sort of early experiences of watching cricket. It was only when we moved back down south that I actually really started watching county cricket, though I did have my first ever test match was when my dad took me to, I thought it was great, but in retrospect, it was an absolutely dire day of test match cricket. And I think it was the 1968 Ashes, which, you know, hardly any runs were scored all day. It was Bill Laurie and Ian Redpath. And the thing I really, really remember and is forever etched on my memory is that in the car park we saw these two England players so I bounced over and asked them for an autograph Alan Knott who was newly the new very young England wicketkeeper said yes so I internally liked Alan Knott Jeff Boycott not only refused but also told Alan Knott off for giving me his autograph no change there then no change there, which has meant I've always had very big doubts about Theresa May's judgment in thinking that Jeff Boycott was your your model. But it was quite notable because my father sort of, you know, it was one of those things when cricket pictures weren't perhaps as ubiquitous, said, why are you asking that schoolboy for his autograph? But I said, that's because he's the England wicketkeeper dad. <laughs> so anyway, so that was my sort of first outing of Test Match Cricket. My brother didn't want to come, so he went off with my mother to see the uh, see the Disney Jungle Book, which I've never seen as a result of going to cricket that day with my dad. But that was my only experience of uh, really sort of first-class Test Match Cricket when we lived up north, but then we moved south, and so things changed because cricket's a lot more accessible if you live in outer London, greater London, than it was if you lived in uh, in Merseyside. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? What was it you loved about the game? So the loads played? of things yeah, that no. I, I did play. We played in the garden. Uh, yeah. The school I was at then, Birkenhead High School, didn't play cricket, so I didn't play formally at all. But we did play in the garden sort of every night, you know, sort of bowling, bowling at my brother, things like that, playing with our dad. Um, so we used to play, but I'd say not a very gifted sports person. The sport, actually, I still do play. It's tennis rather than cricket. So I played both of those. What do I like about cricket? I quite like, uh, there are lots of things I like. I think it's a very beautiful game. Uh, so I think actually just watching a really good batsman bat is just one of the most incredible things. I also think, you know, bowling is very exciting, though I didn't like the period, I have to say, when you kept on wondering whether people were going to get hurt with those very hostile West Indies bowling when they were in their prime. I, you know, I don't go to watch cricket to watch people come away and wonder, you know, what they've broken next. I don't think that's a whole bunch of fun. But the thing I really, really like, I like all formats, but the thing I really like is the arc. I love the fact that you can come in struggle for a while and then make it through or that one bowler can come in it looks like the team are cruising to victory come in take a series of wickets so I just love the fact that you never know how the story's really going to end and I don't think there's any other sport which offers you that sort of arc in quite the same way some tennis matches do 
But I just think, you know, and I love the fact that it's a team sport, but it's team sport that actually doesn't really favour sort of, you know, one physical type over another. You know, remember when I was watching cricket, Colin Milburn, you know, there were some really quite fat guys. They wouldn't really probably make it now. It's Colin Milburn was one of the players. So you had all sorts of physical types. You had people who were very short, uh, people who were very tall. Uh, so it just seemed to me to be a very inclusive sort of, yeah, that's a bit modern. Don't think I probably thought that at the time. But basically you could do anything. And I also really like, and this is sort of a big contrast, uh, I used to, I watched baseball a bit when I was in the States where one of the leagues allows you to, bring in a designated hitter to place the bowl. I also like the fact that cricket makes people do things they're not very good at. So you can have really exciting... If you think of the Headingley Test last year, we all focus on Ben Stokes, but Ben Stokes would have been as nothing without Jack Leach holding up that other end. And I love the fact you get these people who, have, who are at the top of their game, but they're asked to do something they're really not very good at. So I think that's quite exciting too. So... It's a, that's a marvellous exposition of the whole thing. Rather like life, so it has arcs, the great nature of the sort of the ins and outs, the ups and downs. It's fantastic. It's a brilliant, brilliant exposition. Sure, you've actually echoed a lot of the things that we've been discussing with writers on cricket in previous episodes. You've almost encapsulated sort of oh, every, thank you. Every, everything <laughs> they've said. I was just reading, and in fact I spent most of the morning in tears, reading Ian Ridley's book about the death of his wife and trying to and, and try, trying to cope with it by watching county cricket which i deeply recommend it's called breath of sadness and in the course of it he describes going to a hampshire outground on the isle of wight in 2019 to watch them play nottingham and i i didn't and i do think outgrounds are fantastic uh, the significant things for in terms of county cricket and i wish they were used more and i just wonder what you thought about that I'm completely with you on that. I think it's a real shame. I mean, I, you know, for me, I live in central London, so actually I'm within, you know, yeah. forty minute bike ride of the Oval and you know, uh, twenty five minutes to Lords, and I'm not a very fast cyclist. So for me, it works if they play every match at big London grounds. But when I was uh, when we moved down south, um, you know, I went to the Oval with my uncle. My dad and my uncle were both Surrey members as well as being MTC members. But we used to go on Sundays. We used to go to some of these sort of really odd grounds. We'd go to, I think we went to BAC Byfleet. We went to see a game. I remember on a sort of quite not very inspiring afternoon at Charterhouse. Uh, you know, so we'd go around. We went down to somewhere near Portsmouth where Sussex used to, uh, I think Sussex or Hampshire, I think it might have been, I think it was probably Sussex, it was bizarre, I can't remember who it was, but we went, we went to a lot of those grounds and actually, uh, you know, when I first joined the Treasury, I had some friends and we'd, you know, get in the car and go off to, you know, places now that people don't even play like Eastbourne, uh, which was a lovely ground. Yeah, and I think yeah. it's a real shame that people are so anchored now to their base. You can see sort of, you know, in a sense, economically why they do it. I think the last outground I went to was uh, we moved to Croydon when I was a kid. And at that time, Surrey didn't play at Whitgift yeah. School. My brother went to the sister, to the sister school, Trinity. Yeah. But the last sort of outground I went to was to watch Surrey play at Whitgift. And it's really a very different atmosphere watching cricket in those very small grounds. Obviously, the problem, though, there is you, if you want to play a T20, and that's probably the sort of uh, game you're going to get the biggest crowds for, if you want to play a T20... You know, they sell out the Oval 
time and time again, you can't get, get tickets for those games at the Oval spontaneously. You have to get them much in advance. So it's, they're going to take a big hit on revenues if you suddenly go from a ground that will take somewhere towards 30,000 to a ground that will only accommodate you know, yeah. three with their own deck chairs. Yeah. <laughs> sure, can I just... Um, you like cricket in all formats. Will you, will you watch The 100 if they introduce it next year? And, I mean, The 100, you know, the ECB has launched The 100 for, you know, specifically for women and children. Do you think it's something that would attract women and children or do you think that's a, a very sexist assumption? I, can I, I think it's families. I, I'm a great fan of the 100, and I'm, I'd love to know what Jill thinks. But it's about families, not sexist, about women and children. I, dis, I, I disagree, Richard. I think it's a very clever idea. OK, well, that's, what's Jill's verdict? So, I'm, I'm, I mean, I will go and see the 100. I go and see anything. And I was quite relieved to discover that my Surrey membership <laughs> entitled me to tickets to the 100. Of course, I couldn't go this year. As far as I can see, quite a lot of families already go to T20. Certainly at the Oval, you will see quite different groupings going. Though actually, the thing that's the most interesting to go to, if you want a, a bit of a different crowd, is to go to a women's T20 at the Oval. I took a bunch of colleagues to it because actually it only costs a fiver to get into, which makes it much more accessible if you want to go in a big family. It's much easier for small kids to run around uh, when you don't have the sort of big audience you have um and i think that's a sort of really nice sort of way of going to going to see cricket i'm i'm a big fan of women's cricket as quite an interesting way of getting into the sport i think the real challenge with uh, getting more sort of women families and things is one the timing uh, if you're doing it on sort of school nights and the game doesn't end till 9 30 or quarter to 10 which happens with the t20s then it's quite difficult sometimes to bring kids along but also, I think one of the real problems for cricket generally, I mean, it's nothing like going to football matches, which I used to go to a bit, but now um, now I go once every four years to the Emirates with a friend who's a season ticket holder, almost invariably to see a game versus Hull City, which no one else wants to go and see as far as I can see. But, uh, but I don't really like that. I don't. The great thing about cricket is generally the crowds are pretty friendly and you don't feel at all uncomfortable as a woman in the crowd. But the one thing that I think they need to do to make things more family-friendly, and this is going to hit their takings big time, is to stop a night at the cricket being uh, absolutely synonymous with let's all get absolutely plastered. Um, And the thing you notice is how long the beer queues are very often at cricket grounds. And I think, I don't know whether they're going to introduce more alcohol-free stands and things like that, but that would be my reservation about doing it. The other problem is these games are so uh, so popular that, you know, to plan ahead in February that I'm going to get tickets for mid-June, mid-July, and I don't know if it's going to be warm or cold or whatever. It used to be much easier when you could just decide the day before or on the day, yeah, I, actually, it looks like a nice nice day for going to cricket. I'll just uh, just turn up. That's one reason why I'm a member, so I've just got the option of making my mind up at the last minute after being caught out without tickets uh, tickets before. So I think it's I think it's a great initiative. But I think if you really want to see a very different crowd, that was one of the things that was absolutely fabulous about the Women's World Cup final at Lords a few years back. I thought it was an absolute indictment of the MCC 
that so few of their so-called cricket-loving members bothered to turn up for that. But the rest of the stands were all absolutely packed and they were packed with a totally different crowd and a totally different atmosphere to any men's game I've been to. There were big fans. India was in the final, so there were you know big families of India supporters. And it was an absolutely uh, brilliant atmosphere and a very different atmosphere. I remember walking in and seeing all these little girls posing next to various of the cricketers' statues and things like that they have around uh, around Lords. You just thought this is this is a really lovely and very different atmosphere. And um, I'm just not sure how they will managed to, in a sense, shift that balance in the hundred because I think yo know, the tickets will all get snapped up by the people who are very plugged in to uh, already buying cricket tickets uh, like me. Uh, can I, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more, John. I mean, the great problem of the T20 is that it becomes an excuse for a giant piss-up and, <laughs> and it's sort of full of men behaving really badly and not very nice. I mean, it's the most unengaging thing, but it makes shed loads of money. Yeah. And uh, uh, up at Edgbaston, make it make basically their entire year's income out of the T20 finals day. So, but it is, I, I think it's pretty important, those endless beer snakes. Yeah. But just yeah. just changing the atmosphere is, is so important. The one of the nicest I ever saw was the Champions Cup thing, I think, a couple of years back between South Africa and India at the Oval. And because uh, the Indian culture just stopped drinking very much and the South Africans, funnily enough, weren't drinking. So there wasn't just endless people boozing. It was, it was great. It was lovely. I do think actually one of the things I mean it struck me at the uh, when you go to international matches, um, which I'm lucky to get tickets for, at the Oval is just how fantastic it is when you get these matches. You know, you go to sort of Bangladesh versus South Africa. I think I went to at the Cricket World Cup at the Oval last year. The Bangladeshi fans absolutely fantastic with you know all in red and green, playing around with their blow-up tigers and things like that. I think it's just such a great atmosphere. It was almost as though at the Cricket World Cup final, there were so many Indians who'd bought tickets who turned up anyway but didn't possibly really care about the outcome. There was a bit of an atmosphere-free zone compared to some of those earlier matches with some of the sort of you know South Asian sides in them. And I just think they're, they're a real asset to cricket-watching in the UK and really do change the atmosphere. I think the interesting question is, can you persuade those people who turn out to watch, uh, you know, people who come and watch India, Pakistan, Bangladesh to actually turn out at things like the 100 and maybe bringing in some big superstars from uh, from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, Afghanistan now as well with Rashid Khan, will actually bring them in. Did you, did you see any of the Afghan fans? They were... I think they didn't have a successful World Cup, of course, but I think they were voted the most most popular set of fans in the tournament. I miss the Afghan fans, but one of the uh, best films about cricket I've ever seen was a film called Out of the Ashes about the rise of the Afghan cricket team, which has an absolutely brilliant scene where the Afghans are in the very, very lowly ranks of the ICC, uh, have gone to play in Jersey, and the Afghan cricket team turn up at a Jersey hotel where there's a tea dance going on for pensioners, which is, I think, beautifully <laughs> surreal. But I think the Afghan story is just one great cricket story. And I hope they really, really do you know, continue on that sort of upward trajectory. Because I remember you know, going to see India ages ago, you know, one of the first tests go with my dad to, at the Oval. 
And you would sit there and think, well, poor old India, they've got some good spinners, but you know, India's too poor a country, all these fast bowlers are only five foot six or five foot five, and they've never really got a chance of doing anything very much. Some nice wristy batsmen, a few good spinners, but they're never going to cut it really on the world stage. And it's, uh, you know, or when the, I remember a test at the Oval, when England had grudgingly given the Sri Lankans one test and proceeded oh. to be taken apart by Jaya Surya, uh, <laughs> which was a phenomenal test. You'd slightly you thought. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And then bowled out by Mira Lutheran. And bowled out by Mira Lutheran, who you slightly thought, you know, probably needed to bowl from both ends because the Sri Lankans really didn't have any other bowler. But that was an amazing, uh, amazing test match. I remember, I, I love the comment of Arjuna Ranatunga on that test match. He explained, you know, why he'd put England into bat first. And he said, I just wanted to make sure, I knew we'd score enough runs, but I, I just wanted to make sure we had time to bowl England out twice. <laughs> it was a terrific confidence. Um, that is terrific I wonder if you remember the, the Oval Test match in 1971 when, um, when India beat England um, in England for the first time and took, took the series. That was a big, um, big milestone for Indian cricket, of course. I'm not sure. I'm, one of the things I'm very bad at is I'm, I go to lots and lots of matches, but I'm terribly bad at remembering whether I was actually actually there for them. I can't remember whether we went to that. Uh, what I do remember about going to the Oval, I remember the Oval was a bit of a sort of, I mean, it was nothing like uh, Lords, but, uh, but I do remember we used to go into the pavilion because, my, as I said, my dad and my uncle were members and they used to have this sign up which would say sort of, you know, no children except on Sundays, no women for international matches, no bare torsos ever. <laughs> and, you know, at the time that was relatively liberal in the way it was treating sort of women in cricket, certainly compared to, uh, to Lords. And, you know, that is actually one of the things that's been great about the Oval is that it, uh, it accepted the women could be full members quite well in advance of its North London counterpart. Absolutely. When you started going, Jill, were there a lot of other women fans in the grounds? No. Or did you feel no. sort of a bit, hello, I'm a bit, a bit of a loner here? Uh, you always feel that you're a bit alone. I mean, the nice, uh, you know, and even now, you know, if you go and sit in the members' pavilion, there are some women there. Um, I have a group of friends that we all, the way Surrey do their tickets, we all have guaranteed seats together. So, so I go with a couple of other friends from, uh, from university and, uh, and a friend's husband. Uh, so we sit in a row of four. But if you look around, there are more women there but, than there used to be, but they're not huge numbers um, there. I think that is one of the things about T20 is that, you know, you do get people who go, you do get sort of more mixed audience because you do get the sort of lads night out element, but you do also get uh, women going together. It was very noticeable, actually, when I I went to California uh, in the late 1980s on a scholarship and I got taken to baseball. And one of the things you did notice actually going to baseball, we used to go to the Oakland A's at the Coliseum, was that there were far more women who were just going groups of women then uh, in a way that you didn't see, really see groups of women just to sign, they'd rock up at the cricket. But you get, a, you know, I mean, the audiences are are changing a bit now. I'd like to go back to those early club matches that you that you watched, Jill. Were you, as a girl, given any sort of encouragement to become a player for those clubs? Uh, because, of course, clubs now are making a tremendous effort to recruit 
girls and run girls and women's teams. But was that uh, no? Was I, that a fe- I didn't have, don't imagine that was a feature um, when you first started watching. I don't remember anyone doing that. No, the uh, no, and as I said, I don't remember anyone suggesting. Would you like to have a go or um, anything like that? And my school, as I said, that school didn't play cricket at all. I did then move schools because um, the bank that my father worked for was taken over by Barclays. So we moved south. And the school I went to then did play cricket. We actually had a very nice cricket sort of oval um, in the school grounds, uh, which was in sort of, you know, Croydon, in the, on the outskirts of Croydon. So we had a really nice setup. And the, one of the games teachers there was uh, the England women's uh, wicketkeeper a lady called Sheila Plant. So she sort of ran the cricket team. So we did play cricket, I have to say. You know, so I played, so I wasn't very good. It never seemed that the kit really sort of fitted us terribly well, I have to say, uh, slightly in our defence, but I used to always run myself out. But that was, this, that was the scene of my only ever time. I'm not, not very good at sport. My only ever time representing my school at any sports was when I played cricket. So I, was, I opened the bowling uh, it was quite interesting, I remember, because it was a limited overs match and I got a wicket. So whatever, which was great. Um, got someone out. But then the next person who came in, I'm never sure whether she was went on, whether she was, she was an incredibly good cricketer. I think she may have gone on to play for England. I'm never quite sure whether I'm misremembering this bit of false memory syndrome. But I remember she came in and they'd been behind the run rate and she started hitting us out of the park. It wasn't the biggest park to hit us out of, but she was, you know, hitting us all over the place. And I remember saying to Sheila Plant, was it a tactical mistake to take a wicket? And uh, and she uh, looked at me very sternly and said, it's never a mistake to take a wicket. But actually, I think we probably could have, uh, could have probably done quite a lot better if we hadn't got their rather useless, uh, uh, useless opening batsman out and had their sort of extraordinarily good number three come in and uh, win it very quickly for them. But then, actually, because I wasn't much good, uh, I was sort of relegated to the what do you do with people who are keen but not much good, you let them score. Uh, but I didn't think I was that much good at that either because I remember as I was doing some game where I was scoring and ending up where I and the other person scoring ended up with a discrepancy of about 10 runs between the totals we thought the two sides had got and having to having to sort of negotiate where we thought the scores would end up which I think is you know probably nicked my potential career as a uh, as a professional scorer in the bud well, <laughs> well I mean the, the treasury regularly makes errors of about you know two or three billion here and there I don't I think 10 runs in a scorebook isn't, isn't I think to, if it's only two or three billion at the moment about, they'd yeah. be they'd be really quite pleased I think <laughs> I think you can multiply everything through by at least 10 if not 100 at the moment but anyway Jill talking of the treasury you joined it in um in 1978, and I think very soon you discovered it's got a very strong cricketing culture. Yeah, no, I mean the person who was my first boss, I think, uh, I think played cricket uh, as part of this sort of you know group called the Mandarins. My uh, my boss in my next job certainly did. He was a he was a very big Mandarin. I think stayed playing Mandarin. The Mandarins got rather aged, I think, because uh, they kept on having this issue about whether they were getting any young blood in. But I think the uh, the old timers didn't want to let go, so they they stayed. So yes, I mean that was a bit sort of, sort of aside from us because they would go off and play at weekends. But uh, but certainly there was also a very big sort of cricket scores culture. 
I remember when I was working uh, working in a job uh, for Paul, who was a Mandarin, uh, during the Botham's Ashes series, we used to, it was a time when you used to have to ring up to get scores. So we'd ring up from the treasury to get scores, and you know we'd do a thing where every half hour we'd ring up to get a score and hand the sheet over, and then <laughs> someone would ring up the next time and hand it back over the desks in the offices we used to work in. Treasury's all open plan now, so they wouldn't do that. But uh, but after Botham's Ashes, the sort of heading the test, the Treasury banned all calls to the cricket uh, school line because so many people were calling. So we probably shouldn't have been inflicting that cost on the taxpayer. But then, you know, then the, you know, I had quite a lot of Treasury friends who were very keen cricket watchers. And we used to, we formed a sort of bit of a group and would go round to... Uh, watch Sunday matches, you know, go Lords in the Oval, but also go out of London to do that. So, yeah, it was, you know, when I was there early on, it was very much a sort of treasury sport. Jill, I might explain, or perhaps you might, that the Mandarins were specifically a team formed of largely senior civil servants, uh, formed, I think, first in, in the 1960s, included quite a lot of famous, um, well, people who made big careers in the civil service. And um, I used to play them fairly regularly for the Lords and Commons. And I used to play fairly regularly against um, Robin Butler, who was, of course, head of the Cabinet Secretary and head of the civil service and a very, very dedicated cricketer and a very, very correct opening batsman. Oh, I would expect nothing less of Robin. I think he was very correct in everything he did. So uh, so that doesn't surprise me. If you told me he was a sort of uh, Botham-esque figure, I think I'd have been quite taken aback. But uh, anyway, no, there was a very strong sort of bond between between all of them. And indeed, I was at Lords a couple of years ago and bumped into a group of you know, people who I know played together in the Mandarins, treasury people who played together in the Mandarins who are still going to watch cricket together uh, at the MCC. So, you know, many, many years after they finished playing together. Where did they play the civil service? The, where, where was their ground? I don't think they had a ground. I think okay. the Mandarins were a sort of travelling team, weren't Travel they, different. Richard? You they, all know as that. As I remember, they were travelling. I, I, I played them on different grounds. I played them once on the, on the civil service ground, a big complex in, um, in Chiswick. Yeah, that's been sold off now, of course. So, oh, shame. So I've the... played them, I played them, I think, once at the Bank of England ground. Yeah. Uh, I played them at Spencer Park, which is in South London, very good um, club ground in South London. I remember one match, I can't resist getting this in, one match, for some reason, between the Lords and Commons and the, and the Mandarins, was um, an item on Channel 4, uh, on some Channel 4 politics programme, and they, they asked Fred Truman to come in as a guest summariser and um, you know, he, Fred Truman you know watched the match and he had lots of opportunities for his you know his catchphrases I can't understand what's going off out there I don't understand it at all you know he said that freak almost non-stop I think through the through the proceedings <laughs> yeah. can't resist also mentioning the Mandarin colours I'd forgotten about them the uh, Mandarins played in invented their colours Mandarin orange logically and Civil Service Grey was the official, their official colours. Quite a nice match, actually. Quite yeah. a nice match-up, isn't it? Yes. Well, I have to say, I didn't know there was such a thing as Civil Service Grey, but I suppose it fits. But, uh... <laughs> of course, you came into contact, didn't you, with quite a lot of ministers who are great, avid cricket followers. John Major is well-known, but also Ken Clark. And, um, and Peter Brook was especially fond of cricket and was a, 
absolute mine of cricket statistics, wasn't he? Yeah, well, they were all um, all at one point or another treasury ministers, and so I was uh, uh, I was private secretary to the chief secretary. That's the sort of number two treasury cabinet minister in uh, 1987, and uh, by former minister had been promoted and this new minister John Major came in who I didn't really know much of he'd sort of you know been notable for sort of rising without trace but it was one of those very interesting sort of early things about how do you actually establish some sort of personal connection to a minister and he came in and because I was a Surrey member I had a Surrey fixture list pinned to the wall behind my desk so John Major also a very keen Surrey fan, very, very knowledgeable, went on to be president of Surrey as well as president of the MCC, came in and, you know, and said, oh, you've got a Surrey fix. So we uh, talked a lot about cricket. So that was uh, that was really interesting because we one of the things you had if you were in a ministerial private office is we used to have a television in uh, John Major's room. So one of the things we used to do was when there was an exciting bit of cricket, we would put on the television in John Major's room and there were some officials that we liked, quite a lot of officials he didn't like very much, but there were a lot of <laughs> officials he did like. And the sort of you know Venn diagram of officials he got on with who also liked cricket would be invited up to come and watch a bit of cricket with, uh, with the chief secretary. So that was hugely useful bonding. And I remember, I remember having a long chat with him about Graham Hick, played for Worcestershire then but sorry we were playing Worcestershire it turned out that John Major had never seen Graham Hick so I said well let's just go to the Oval and let's go and watch so we went and sat in the sort of you know uh, balcony of the pavilion and watched uh, Graham Hick who I think got rather disappointed he got about 27 or something like that I'm sure people will check the facts and tell me that's wrong but he he uh, flourished only to disappoint which is of course one of the things about cricket is you can turn up and you just can't predict what's happening. You know, you may go and see, sit there and just watch all day and be amazed or somebody can, you know, just flash at one too many outside the off stump and they're toast. Did you see, uh, Jill, that talking of Graham Hick, that very excellent documentary about the Australians called The Test? I did. I watched that. Um, that was actually one of my first bits of pre-lockdown watching. Yeah. Uh, courtesy of Amazon Prime, which I actually have because it has the tennis now. Yeah. I'm also a very big tennis fan. And it was recommended to me by, you mentioned I work at King's, so it was recommended to me by my colleague at King's, Anand Menon, who, of course, is a massive India, massive Virat Kohli fan. Yeah. And he said, you've yeah. got to watch this thing about the Aussies. It makes them almost likable. <laughs> and I realised watching that, I think it was really, really, I think it was a brilliant programme. And I realised watching that how far I'd been sucked in because when it got to that episode about the Headingley test, yeah. I, you know, last year's Ashes, I was sitting there thinking, come on, Australia, come on, Australia, you can do that. And then I thought, no, this is yeah. the one we win. You know, yeah. I'd been watching that last year, absolutely riveted yeah. by what uh, what Ben Stokes would uh, would manage to do with, as we mentioned earlier, Jack Leach. So I was thinking, no, I'm getting too into these Australians here. But it did make them... Uh, I thought Tim Payne, who I slightly wondered what on earth does Tim Payne bring to the party, but I thought he came over incredibly, incredibly well in that. Uh, So I thought that was a, I thought that was one of the sort of best sports documentaries I've seen. 
Jill, highly recommended. Uh, me too, highly. The the um, uh, Graham Hick is in it. He's part of the Aussie coaching squad. I know. You sort of slightly feel slightly never says a word. Be doing never, that, sa so. never says a word. It's quite sort of interesting. But no, I loved it too. And and uh, do you you like going to Australia to to, to watch cricket? Yeah, I love going to Australia. So I have a I have quite a lot of friends, which enables me to freeload. I have to say, it's it's become a sort of increasingly frustrating process, though, as uh, England do not do very well in the tests I've seen recently, and it looks increasingly as though they're going in rather inadequately prepared for an Australian uh, Australian summer, but. Uh, but I love the atmosphere in Australian grounds. I love the, uh, I used to love the fact that it was so cheap to go to Australian grounds. You could get yourself a sort of, you know, whole match ticket at the MCG for less than it would cost for a day to watch cricket at, uh, uh, at the Oval or Lords, which of course doesn't take into account the fact you've had to fly down there. But once you're there, it seemed very cheap and easy to go. I have to say one of the cricket phenomenon that I absolutely detest, and we were talking about things that put women off cricket. The thing I absolutely loathe is the balmy army and the whole balmy army sort of atmosphere. And I remember we once went to a test match with some treasury friends. We went to a test match at the SCG and it was a good test match. It's fine. You know, it's a perfectly good test match. But my friend, when he'd been buying tickets, it was before they required you to have an Australian credit card to buy tickets and stuff like that, was asked when he was ringing up to book, do you want tickets with the Barmy Army or not with the Barmy Army if you're buying them from uh, England? And he, and I could have strangled him for this, said near the Barmy Army. So we had these seats where we were just subject to Barmy Army all day. We took an we dragged an Aussie friend, the Aussie friend I was staying with, who really doesn't like cricket at all, to the first day, which was very hot and not very exciting. And one of the guys in front of me, this English guy, was clearly on the gap year, was so obnoxious that, you know, after tea, I just poured a bottle of water over him and told him to shut up. And her comment was, Jill, you've gone feral. So we sit, uh, I now make sure that I sit as far as possible as I can away from them. But I have to say, it does put me off the idea of going to some of these smaller grounds, like, you know, going to the West Indies and things like that. I sort of think that's just not, not, you know, the atmosphere I want to sit and watch cricket in. I know the players love it. So, you know, so this is my sort of personal, personal prejudice against it. But it is one of the things that I would find quite off-putting. But no, but Australia actually has given me some of the sort of top, uh, cricketing experiences. Uh, I love one of my favourite players. I've, I'm sort of quite fickle. Was Adam Gilchrist? I absolutely loved Adam Gilchrist. I mean, love Adam you know, Seem a really nice bloke, but also just you know absolutely magic to watch. So I used to have this very sort of ambivalent view that I wanted Gilchrist to score a century in a Test match that England won, and that happened once when I was there in Sydney where we had a Gilchrist test match and an England victory. So that was extraordinarily good. But one of the best uh, best times ever was going out to Australia for the Ashes series in, I think, 2010-11, when the Andrew Strauss Ashes, and I think the Boxing Day at Melbourne, when England had clearly won that test match by stumps on the first day, when Australia had been skittled out, and then Strauss and Cook were just taking them apart. 
was just absolutely brilliant after all the humiliation. I was sitting there, we'd gone out and we'd gone to the Perth test and I'd managed on, you know, we hadn't been drinking anything. I went with a friend who doesn't drink at all. We'd been down to the beach at Cottesloe after a day at the Perth test. We're walking back to our hotel and I tripped over the root of a tree in the dark, managed to dislocate and break my elbow, had to go into the Perth Royal Infirmary, highly recommended if you ever break your elbow in Perth, and they'd had to set it. So I was sitting there with a giant big plaster on and stuff, but that that was absolutely one of the best days cricket I'd ever seen. So it was just so brilliant to watch them taking it apart. But But I hope that the next time we go down and play the Ashes in Australia... England is competitive because recently, by the time it's got to Melbourne and Sydney, it's been so much a foregone conclusion, and it's just been really embarrassing to read some of the Australian papers about the uh, about the England team. Uh, uh, the Lords and Commons went to Australia, New Zealand in two thousand five, two thousand six, and um, we caught um, sadly, you know, Freddie Flintoff's tour when we were completely whitewashed. Um, we were supposed to go to a test at the uh, I think it was the last day in Melbourne, and unfortunately England couldn't get that far. So, there was no so last day in Melbourne. Cricket day. Yeah. But, but I remember being there for the Adelaide test, which was the one in that tour, which was the one it looked like England should win. And it was one of those times when it was quite difficult to get internet connection. I remember going into the Adelaide Public Library that morning and emailing somebody back in England saying, at least we won't lose today. And then... By the end of the afternoon, unfortunately, we'd managed to throw away. And that's that one where we scored, isn't down in the record books as, you know, teams who lose having scored over 500 in the first innings or whatever. Yeah. So Paul Collingwood made a double century. We made, I think, a 557. We asked him to follow on and that was fatal. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so. Yeah. Do you think we will be able to fly to Australia in a year's time? Literally a year from now, actually. So I had actually rather hoped to go to the International T20 tournament this autumn because there was a, I think England was supposed to be playing South Africa on my birthday at the MCG and I sort of thought that would be a nice thing to do. Obviously that's uh, disappeared. Australia says it won't let people travel, won't reopen its borders to tourists until there's a vaccine. So we have to hope that... uh, that the very positive reports about the um, uh, BioNTech uh, Pfizer vaccine come through, I think, if we're going to stand any chance. Because I have a colleague who's been working from Australia for, since April, and I asked if I'd be able to come this Christmas, and she said no. Uh, so I'm not sure it's looking great at the moment, but hopefully, hopefully, hopefully we will do. And hopefully England will you know, actually have a decent team to send down there. I think so. I think so. They've got a very good new opener, Australia. Um, so I hadn't realised they will not let anybody in until there's a vaccine, Australia. I didn't know that. At the moment, they're not even letting a lot of Australian citizens return. And yeah. I think there's some case about whether they're breaching fundamental human rights by rationing, partly because Australia imposes very strict quarantine that you have to pay for. So you have to do two weeks in a quarantine hotel because one of the reasons for the resurgence in Melbourne was that that was so inadequately supervised. Um, So uh, 
Australia and New Zealand are very strict. I think they're forming a travel, they're talking of a travel bubble between the two. But I think they're leveraging their place as an island. So I think our chance at the moment, certainly this this winter slash summer is a write-off, which is very annoying. They're not even sure that the Australian Open tennis will be able to go ahead. I think they're in negotiations about whether the players will be let off the quarantine requirements. So... It's grisly, isn't it? Grisly. It's very bad. But I think what cricket has been one of the great saviours, though, what of lockdown. Savior. I thought the you know, we're very critical, you know, generally of the ECB. But I thought putting on the summer series, uh, you know, the West Indies and then Pakistan coming, that one day series with Australia Fantastic. were just real saviours. And actually, the thing that I've got into that I never really had got into before, and now I'm slightly missing is the IPL. I'd never really watched that much IPL cricket, but I got myself stuck into a sort of daily routine of, is it, you know, Rajasthan Royals versus Sunrisers Hyderabad today or whatever. So I got very, very into that as well during lockdown. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get a bit more of that at least. And actually, I think it's amazing how good the cricket is without a crowd. The one thing that's really odd is if you've got the cricket on the background and you're working, is you just don't know something's happened. You look up and suddenly discover two wickets have gone down, whereas normally you'd have uh, you'd have heard the crowd reaction and looked up and seen the replay. Yeah, yeah, it was a sensational summer, I thought. Sensational and brilliant. But of all the players to, to do all that with no crowd, no nothing, and all in bubbles, I thought it was magnificent. Magnificent entertainment too. I mean, that's been true, actually, of tennis as well. There's been some fantastic tennis being played. So actually, it does show that when you get really committed, top of their game, professional sports people, you know, they obviously take some energy from the crowd, but actually, you know, they can do it without. And I think that's a really interesting revelation. And I think it's just brilliant that they've been prepared to go through the sort of, you know, isolation, the bubbling and all those biosecurity measures to give us fantastic entertainment. I'm so glad you like the IPL because you are seeing the best players in the world doing some of the most prodigious sort of athletic and physical feats in fielding, batting and so on. I think it's marvellous and I've loved it for years. In fact, I'm wearing a Rajasthan Royals shirt as we speak. (laughs) But one of the interesting things, I think, is that you've got these combinations of these really big name test players, but so often the people who really star, particularly on the batting side, are these, you know... People, you know, in the Indian players you've never heard of, not yeah. come across before and stuff like that. So it's a really great mix. I mean, you could, but the, the really stunning thing, and particularly from, you know, remembering watching India play way back, is just how phenomenal the fielding is in most of those games as well. I mean, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's just great to watch. I think it's been great entertainment. I couldn't agree more. Joe, looking back on your experience of... Um watching cricket in England and in Australia and perhaps other places. What do you think are the ingredients that um, would make um, cricket more attractive to spectators, particularly women in the era after COVID, when it's got to um, restore itself? I think a a bit is uh, just this sort of atmosphere. I think, actually, I think the ticket pricing is a bit of a nightmare. I mean, now is when I... First went to the Oval, you'd get those sort of big crowds spilling out um, along the boundary. Um, lots of West Indian supporters, you know, people lived locally who would just turn up. I think the sort of 
loss of spontaneity of having to book tickets so much in advance, whether that means we need much bigger stadia, I think is an interesting question because, you know, you still can turn up on the day in some of the Australian grounds um, for matches. I think the thing that's really interesting is taking people who've never been before. And I think that's one of the great things about T20 because it really does just fit into an evening and you can persuade people to come who would never sort of dream of taking a whole day off to watch cricket or spending one of their precious weekend days doing that. And you say, come along, you know, what's the worst that can happen? The worst that can happen is that, you know, you just spend the afternoon, you know, evening chatting to your friends and talking and stuff like that. But actually, you'll find that there's something really, really interesting and fun to watch as well. And you'll really enjoy it. And I don't think I've ever taken anyone to a cricket match who hasn't, you know, actually enjoyed it, um, particularly the, sort of some of those T20s. The bits I would say is be very crowd-friendly. I mean, they've got so much better than they used to be back in the sort of 60s and 70s, 80s, about not going off for bad light, keeping going, which used to be one of the big nightmares when you'd have those days and you'd be sitting there. You remember when sitting there wondering whether David Constant and Dickie Bird were going to keep them off all day when they would call it off. I mean, that was that used to be absolutely dire. Uh, so I hated that. But I think one of the things that is quite bad, I mean, I quite like all the music, though the PA systems are really quite bad, is I remember taking a bunch of American friends to the Oval and I got them all school cards and they were all keeping track very, very carefully of what was going on. And I explained to them that this was really exciting because, you know, we were in the penultimate over and, you know, the other team needed 10 off the last over to win. It was going to be really exciting. And then all the players walked off. (laughs) And I looked at them and, yeah, they looked at me and said, what's just happened? And I'd say, I don't know. But it turned out there was some really obscure niche rule that uh, Surrey had taken too long to bowl there. And, you know, so they'd been docked an over. So when we thought they had 40 overs, they only had 39. None of us had heard the announcement. There was zero communication. And we were all just left really feeling, so what was that? And I have to say, I felt that slightly at the end of the Cricket World Cup final uh, last year, where, you know, I understood the super over. I got the super over. But it was only people who were listening on the radio who seemed to be aware that there was some very odd rule that would come into play about whether you'd scored boundaries or not. And it struck me that that was just one of the best days cricket ever. Uh, It was a great day to be at. I only got a ticket at the last minute because of a friend in the New Zealand High Commission. So it was absolutely brilliant day there. And at the end, you just felt this ending doesn't work. It's a real sort of anti-climax. And I remember, I remember a similar experience too. I was uh, at the 1999 World Cup semi-final between Australia and South Africa, where at the end, I was with an Australian friend. I'd had the option of going with an Australian friend or with a South African friend. Fortunately, I opted for the Australian, which made the drive back much better than it would have been with the South African. But at the end... We were trying to work out who'd won. And someone said, well, 
Alan Donald's not looking very happy and the Aussies are. So we'll assume they've won. And I think cricket's really bad sometimes. What was the rule there, Jill? Why, what was that? I can't remember. That was because they tied, but I think that was sort of fewer. I think that might have been fewer wickets in that case. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I think tied scores, it was then a fewer wickets count back. Whereas, you know, the, the Kiwis were done down by some random thing that was mattered whether you'd scored boundaries. And you yeah. slightly thought, well, you could equally have a perfectly valid rule that said fewer dot balls won it for you. Yeah, I just exactly. didn't understand why they didn't have another super over like they do in the IPL. I mean, you know. Uh, why didn't they, they just share it? Why not just or, share it? Or just share it. I have to say, I thought, you know, we've been talking a lot about bad losers in the last week watching the US uh, presidential election. Yeah. I thought Kane Williamson Marvel. was oh. the most gracious loser ever. And we're always talking about these sort of spirits of cricket. What can cricket teach us about life and things like that? And I thought, you know, for, you know, particularly as I was there with New Zealand diplomats, just thought, <laughs> you know, you may have lost, but actually New Zealand, the New Zealand team have emerged from this as such winners. I but agree. actually, I thought they should have shared it. it. That would have been a much better and more satisfactory outcome. Couldn't agree more. Jill, it's been wonderful talking to you. Um, great range of cricket experience. Some very wise advice to the cricket authorities at the end of it all. Jill, and your many activities. Could you find time to take over the ECB, do you think? <laughs> I would love to take over the ECB, but the thing I would do first, and frankly, one of the things that most annoys me, lots of people ask me why I'm not an MCC member. And the truth is that for most of my life, my dad could sponsor lots of my friends to be MCC members, but of course not me, uh, because I couldn't do that. And I thought one of the things that the MCC did really, really badly was that when it massively belatedly opened up its doors to women, it didn't say, well, actually, there are a lot of women who've come to a lot of cricket who we haven't let in, but we're going to actually accelerate through some women members who would have put their names down years ago, but couldn't because of our rules. And then I think you'd actually have a very different look in the MCC pavilion, because if you want to look and say, where actually does it look as though women still have no place at cricket matches? It's when you look at the MCC pavilion. And as my Aussie friends would say, that's not a good look. Well, absolutely. Very good. Another very good message, um, and which will pass on to our previous guest, Claire Connor, the forthcoming first woman's president of the MCC. Once again, Joe, it's been wonderful talking to you. I um, wish we could have had more time, but um, and perhaps you'll come back and um, tell us a bit more. But uh, for now, thank you very much. And it's goodbye for me, Richard Heller, on a now windy southeast London. And it's goodbye from me, Roger Alton. It's pouring the rain. It was a pleasure to talk to you, Jill. Fascinating. Thanks very much. That was great. 